0: and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever."
1: Would you please remain standing as we uh, commit this time in prayer? Heavenly Father, just as the morning sun breaks the dark of night, we would ask that your spirit through your word would break into our hearts in a new way and uncover what might be there and fill us with a double portion of your grace and your spirit. Would you do that through the preaching of your word this morning? We love you. Please be honored and magnified in this time. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Denver Prez. If you are new with us this morning, my name is Ronnie. Ronnie. I'm senior pastor here. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I would not say that I am um, inclined towards the culinary arts. I, uh, I don't like to cook. The kitchen scares me. I remember when uh, Amanda and I were dating, uh, you know, I was kind of batching it up, living alone, and she would call me just to check up on me and ask, hey, Ronnie, what, what did you make for dinner? to which I said, Gatorade and raisin bread, (laughs) fancy. So cooking, baking, it kind of makes me anxious. Now I love to eat, don't get me wrong, but getting there is intimidating. Nevertheless, when I graduated from college, I was by myself, my first apartment, Um, there is one meal that I learned to make and I made it regularly. And it was my mom's recipe, of atole de arroz. Um, You may have heard it called like arroz con leche or um, I think in English we say rice pudding. Thank you. Uh, Rice pudding. Uh, It's not too complicated. Rice, milk, cinnamon, sugar. Uh, There's lots of ways that Latinos make it, but my mom would make it warm and we would eat it for breakfast. So for a guy who doesn't cook, I made it frequently, and not because I have a sweet tooth, though I do have a sweet tooth. Um, I would make it frequently because I wanted to remember home. Home. Sitting in my mother's kitchen is one of, like, the most warm, and what am I so, t- like, what's wrong with me? I'm, like, so, like, emotional all the time. <laughs> this happens in, I don't know, Okay. But it's like sitting in my mother's kitchen. It's like one of the most warm and loving places on earth. And it's really amazing how we tie food to experiences. I mean, think of like any holiday, and you can probably associate some kind of corresponding food, right? Like Christmas, ham, Thanksgiving, turkey, uh, for the July grilling dogs and burgers, uh, birthdays, cake, right? We, We do this. Food has this way of helping you remember who you are. And sitting alone in my first apartment, eating my mom's recipe of atole de arroz reminded me who I am. I am a mother's son. I am a Garcia. Now, if you can understand just a little bit of that story, and I think you can, then you're beginning to understand the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper works in that way and so much more. See, our text this morning picks up with Jesus having arrived in Jerusalem. He knows he's about to be killed, right? And uh, he's been talking about it for weeks and he sits down with his disciples. And what happens that night is that he starts a family tradition, and we as a church still practice this family tradition, the sacramental meal, and it's practiced throughout the world, right? We call it sometimes communion, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper. Now, maybe you uh, don't come from a background and where this is like heavily emphasized or probably more likely you don't come up from a church that does it every single Sunday. We do. We think it's a big deal. Um, and the question is, why do we do that? I mean, like, what gives? What gives? Well, as we study Mark 14 this morning, we're going to answer that question. Like, why do we do that? And then we're going to answer that in three ways. The Lord's Supper does three things for you note-takers this morning. It gives us an identity. It seals us. And the Lord's Supper nourishes us. Identity, sealing, nourishing. So let's begin uh, the study of our text this morning by seeing how the Lord's Supper gives us an identity. So just this week, all four of my kids are officially in high school. I've got four high schoolers. So if y'all will just lift, up, lift us up in prayer, that'd be think, we'd be thankful for all that. So, they're all back in school, and there's already a conversation that has emerged that's, that's started, and it's HOCO. You know what that is? That's how high, school callers, high schoolers talk about homecoming. I, that's, I, we didn't do that, but it's HOCO, okay? So, homecoming. And, like, homecoming's kind of a big deal in high school. Uh, and, for as big of a deal as it is in high school, it's even a bigger thing in the university. Um, it's a big thing for graduates especially. And homecoming in the university for graduates kind of works like this. One specific weekend in the fall, uh, it's, it's one weekend is selected, usually around a kind of an important football game or one that you're pretty sure you're going to win. And you get together uh, on that weekend. You meet at the school. You meet with your former classmates. It's really special, right? Because you retell stories, you, uh, you walk down the same sidewalks, you remember all the crazy things that happened in school, those shared experiences, and you rehearse the good old days. And what all of this does is it awakens in you this identity with your school, a passion for your school. So when you ask, who am I? You say, I am an Air Force Academy Falcon. I am an Arkansas Razorback, right? This is us, right? And retelling those stories is powerful, and it's formative. Now, the universities, uh, and especially the boosters, but the universities totally get this. And this is how come homecomings are a huge ordeal every year, because they never want you to forget where you come from. No matter how far away you, you move away from your university, they never want you to forget where you come from. Now, in a very important way, the Jewish Passover works just like homecoming, but even bigger. Now, I say the Jewish Passover because the Lord's Supper is speaking into that. If you look right in verse 12, it gives us the context. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, the backdrop of our study on the Lord's Supper is the Jewish Passover. This practice, this thing we do didn't just pop out of nowhere, has a context. It's the Passover, which is the first day of unleavened bread, the 15th day of Nisan, Jewish calendar stuff. And see, when you talk about the Lord's Supper, you've got to understand it in this context. So I would even argue that you can't even understand what Jesus is up to without understanding this first. So if you are uh, new to the Bible, um, what I'm going to do this morning in this first point is I'm going to give us a little Cliff's Notes of Old Testament history. So the Passover was kind of like Israel's Independence Day. It was their 4th of July. This is the day that God brought them out of Egypt. Now, if you remember um, from Genesis, God makes a promise with Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one of which is this kid named Joseph. Now, Joseph, through a series of events, ends up in Egypt, and he ends up becoming the right-hand man to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Now what happens is this huge famine comes upon Palestine where the other 11 sons and their families are. And so they come over and migrate to Egypt and there Joseph is waiting for them. The Hebrew people get to have special priority in Egypt for a while. They do very well in Egypt until a new Pharaoh comes to power. He wasn't pleased with all of Israel's success. He enslaves them. And listen, this went on for 400 years. So they're enslaved, this Hebrew nation, for 400 years. But here's the thing. God never forgot about his people. He did not forget about that promise that he made to Abraham. So God raises up his prophet Moses, goes to Pharaoh, and says those famous words. Let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. Pharaoh's super hard-hearted. He kept refusing. Uh, The Lord sent all of these judgments to sort of incentivize Pharaoh to let his people go. He refused. I mean, there was like frogs and hail and boils, all this awkward stuff, still nothing. So the Lord says to Moses, he says, I'm gonna send one final judgment and it's gonna do the trick. And this is going to cause Pharaoh to let my people go, to free them. But when it comes, God says to Moses, you need to be ready to go because it is going to happen quickly. Now, with a little bit of irony, the Lord sends his 10th and final judgment, sends the angel of destruction to kill the firstborn of every family. Now, I say irony because just a few years earlier, Pharaoh killed the firstborn of all the uh, Jewish people. But this final judgment is different because the thing about the Lord's judgment is that everyone, Jews and Egyptians, are called out. Like no one, no one is innocent before the Lord. Everyone is implicated. The Lord's judgment does not discriminate. See, the angel of the Lord would come to Every home, even Jewish homes. But there would be a provision made to anyone who would put their faith in the God of Israel. And it would be what? The blood of the lamb, right? The Lord says, hey, sacrifice a lamb, take its blood, paint it on the doorposts, And when you do, the angel of the the Lord will see this blood and he will what? Pass over the house and judgment will not come. But this will come quickly and you got to be ready for it and so the hebrew nation they get ready they pack up their belts are tied they 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 br- they make bread for a road trip that they're going to start at the in the dark of night and they do this dinner with their shoes on and they do all of this and the judgment comes and pharaoh says enough like it works get out i can't deal with this anymore and israel leaves that very night that was Passover night and the Lord says every year you are going to celebrate this 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 day of independence and you are going to celebrate it with this meal so each year they gather as families and they recreate this moment they kill a lamb they bake bread without leaven they eat the meal with their belts tight and their shoes on And they're not celebrating like God's judgment per se. They're celebrating his keeping his promises. That just what he promised to Abraham is preserved with them. That God would save and redeem them and bring them out of Egypt and into their home, this promised land. That God would make a special covenant with them and know them and be their God. And that is what God did. And so for 1,000 years, every year, Jews celebrated Passover with a special meal. And at this meal, the father, the head, would look at his family, look at his children, and he would say, hey, fam, this is our story. This is who we are. When you eat this meal, Remember who you are. Remember where you come from. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the very week of his own death, it is the Passover. Jesus is a good Jew, remember, so he looks for a place to celebrate this meal. Now here in a moment, I'm gonna talk through how Jesus transforms this meal for Christians. But for now, let me ask, Can you now begin to understand why we practice the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Do you see what it does? By eating and drinking together, we tell a story of who we are and where we come from. And that's more powerful than any homecoming. This is like a real homecoming. We're coming home to our Father's table every Sunday. It was interesting, we just had a parent seminar, a parenting seminar, and this was kind of a theme that came through. Um, you know, Amanda and I think about this a lot. Um, when our kids grow up, we want them to remain Christians, to walk with Jesus, like their entire lives, right? We want that for them. And we know, like, you know, raising kids, is, it's not a formula. Uh, it's not something we can just will to happen but we want our kids to have an identity, not just like make a decision, but have an identity that's so tied to Christ that they literally cannot understand themselves apart from being Christian. It's like, it's like who I am. I mean, who am I if I'm not a Garcia? Who am I if I'm not a Christian? I mean, I want my daughters to say it is who I am. It is what Garcias are. This reality, however, uh, the truth is, is that in this life, we are given other identities as a framework of understanding ourselves, right? Maybe it's groups or politics or our sports or our vocations. But Jesus brings us to this table and says, This is your primary identity. You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. You are a Christian. And this is the main way you understand yourself. This is an identity that you can't earn. It is received. It's not achieved. You are a Christian. Remember who you are. And remember what God has done for you. Now listen, other identities aren't like necessarily bad, but they have to be secondary. So for instance, let's say uh, you're a doctor. We have a few of those. Uh, then if you're a doctor, that is the way in which you live out your primary identity. You get that? In other words, like if you are a doctor, you're not primarily a doctor, you are a Christian And God has made you a doctor so that you can live more faithfully in that arena to serve him for the sake of healing his world. You're a Christian healer for the sake of him. The Lord has kept promises to you and your vocation is an arena for living into that primary identity. Can you see? And you can do that for anything, for any of these other identities. The Lord's Supper is a time of feasting so that we remember who we are and where we come from. And we come home and we come home. Now, let me transition now uh, because it's really interesting that the Lord institutes this meal knowing that a betrayal is about to happen. So, the next part of our Text is critically important because the, Lord, uh, the Lord's Supper doesn't only give us an identity, point number one, but it seals us, it seals us, point number two. Um, I could remember uh, when I was going to seminary, uh, right before I was going, a handful of people in my life um, were concerned. Isn't that interesting? Uh, they would say, hey, I hope you don't lose your faith in seminary. I mean, what a thing to say, right? What a thing to say. Are you going to cemetery or seminary? (laughs) Ha, 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 right? The jokes. Now, why, like, why would they say that? I mean, how can your faith die if you're spending all your time thinking about your faith? Well, I realize even asking that's actually quite naive because all Christians, even seminary students and pastors, we all struggle to maintain our faith. We all have doubts. Um, You know, it's interesting, I almost cry every time we sing that song um, where we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yes, like, I'm so prone to leave the God I love. And see, God knows this about us. Um, like Like a Mexican mother, though, God, our Heavenly Father, is always pushing a little food on us to strengthen us. And when we struggle, it's a meal that calls us back. It seals us. And let me show you how this works in this text. So as we already saw in verse 12, uh, the disciples were asking, well, where will you have us go to prepare for, you, prepare for us in, uh, this Passover? And then this next section from verse 13 to 21, y'all, it's, the, it's what we read over, but it's so amazing. So Jesus sends two disciples ahead to look for a man who's carrying jars of water. He says, follow him to his home and then ask him a question and use this script. Verse 14, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And when that happens, then the man will show you an upper room furnished and ready. And then in verse 16, it says, and the disciples set out, went into the city, and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the passover like it happened like 2AT it happened now listen it's uncertain textually if god if jesus was like using his divine foreknowledge or if he just had a plan but there's one thing that is for certain and it's really, un- it's really important for you to understand this. Otherwise, John Mark, our author, you won't understand his agenda with this detail. And it's this, Jesus is never caught by surprise. It was all a part of his good plan. Never caught by surprise, always a part of his good plan plan. And you've got to understand that because that is what's going to interpret what comes next in verse 17 and following. Jesus is never caught by surprise, and this is no more more evident than the prophecy that one will betray him. So Jesus is in the upper room, which is, you guys, I don't know if you read this correctly, but it is a very intimate experience to eat with someone is to share communion and fellowship with them. Like the Pharisees are totally dialed into this because they're always accusing Jesus of eating and having fellowship with like sinners, right? It's very intimate. And in typical Jewish fashion, Jesus leads the, 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 the Jewish Passover Seder meal. And as the head, he would have recited portions of Scripture He would have eaten the ceremonial elements of the meal. He would have interpreted what the Passover meant, telling stories of Israel's deliverance. But in this case, where our passage picks up, John Mark, the author, doesn't talk about those parts because Jesus derails the celebratory feast by saying, verse 18, truly, I say to you, one of you, Will betray me. And so, like, what begins as a family meal celebrating Israel's greatest moment in their history now becomes a murder mystery. Like a murder mystery dinner. Why? And and, and I think about it like from the like the disciples' perspective. We know that, like, we know that Judas betrays Jesus, but the disciples don't. Verse 19 says, all the disciples were sorrowful. And they're all like asking, like, is it, is it me? I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I'm going to betray Jesus, but I, I don't know. Like, is it me? I mean, Peter, right, must have been super nervous. I mean, he was the one who got that unfortunate nickname a few chapters earlier. Remember that one when they, he's called Satan? Yeah, like Satan, get behind me. That's uncomfortable, right? I mean, who would betray their beloved leader. It's someone who is intimate, who dipped bread with him. And now it seems likely that when Jesus says in verse 21, that the son of man goes as it is written of him. In other words, that he will die as it was predicted, that the disciples know. They know what he's talking about. They know what he's saying. They don't like it, but they understand it. And Judas understands it. And there is this tension of, of Judas's choice to betray Jesus and God's sovereign holy foreknowledge. Jesus is not surprised that Judas will betray him, and still he invites him to dine. The tension is a mystery that, like, we cannot fully unravel, not in a million years. But here's why it's so important to keep the mystery. Because if you blow this off, you're going to actually miss John Mark's point. So follow me on this. Dial it in for one second. From verses 17 to 21, Jesus is prophesying of a betrayal. From verse 22 to 25 is the details of the actual meal. But then in verse 26, which we don't have in our bulletin, but if you're in your Bible, it picks right back up in verse 26, you have Jesus again prophesying that Peter and the rest will abandon him and fall away and betray him. So in between these two acts of betrayal, betrayal one, prophecy one, Lord's Supper, prophecy two of betrayal. In between these two is the Lord's Supper. Now, do y'all remember that word I taught you about a month ago called an inclusio? Do y'all remember that? Like the fig tree of the fig tree event, fig tree again, and what's in the middle is interpreting the fig tree? Do y'all remember that? We have here another inclusio. We have two acts of betrayal that are interpreting this intimate communion. In the Lord's Supper, when Jesus at the table blesses the bread and gives it to his friends, he's, he's making them the recipient of his blessing. When Jesus blesses the cup and then gives it to his friends, he's making his friends the recipient of the blessing of his blood. Now, why, why am I telling you all of this? Because Jesus is making a new meal, a family meal, and the family at the table are filled with ugly and dark sins. I mean, like embarrassing things. Our faith is so fragile, and we're so filled with doubts, even in especially seminary students and pastors. And how do we know that we are invited to be a part of God's family with all of our acts of betrayal? It's because Jesus knew who he was serving the bread and wine to, and he did it with joy. And that interprets the event. And we find ourselves... In the same spot, we betray, we abandon, and Jesus still blesses, breaks, gives, blesses, pours, and he gives it to us. And if you feel unworthy to take the meal, then you're barely starting to understand God's grace. The unworthiness that you feel is what qualifies you to take the meal and to hold tight to him and to cling to his worthiness, not your own. That is the grace in the juxtaposition of faith that we practice every single Sunday. And through this sacrament, unworthy, unqualified people are qualified and sealed in Christ. They are qualified and sealed by his body and blood, not our own moral performance. And you got to understand that or you'll miss the whole point. You're sealed. And now we have arrived to the final section of our passage. So we looked at the identity that this meal brings, we looked at how this sacrament seals us, and man, like don't our betraying hearts need it. And now let's look at the precise details of the meal itself, this is verses 22 through 25. And as we do, you'll notice that Jesus will say that the meal is a reminder of the covenant in his blood. So if there's this existing covenant, what role does this meal play in that pre-established covenant? And so let me answer that question like this. Last December, my two older brothers and my younger sister and I planned my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. Uh, There was catered Mexican food. There were mariachis. uh, There was lots of bling, Latino style. It was like amazing. Uh, But before this amazing like uh, fiesta started, we had a vow renewal service. And I got to do it. I got to officiate my parents' renewal. It was a really big honor for me, but I am like the family pastor. You know how that works, right? So here's what they did. And you've probably seen something like this before. My parents walked down the aisle between all of their friends, um, something like they did the very first time 50 years earlier. They stood at the altar together just like they did 50 years earlier, and they restated those same vows, the same ones that they took, 50 years earlier. Now, in doing this, they're not getting remarried, right? This is not a new commitment. And yet the ceremony deepens that commitment to which they are already bound, you see. The ritual of saying it again and, and saying it in front of other people, it deepens it, even if it's already true. It's not new, but it deepens it, you see. That's actually how the Lord's Supper works. See, you don't take the Lord's Supper without a previous commitment. It is based on faith. This is how come every Sunday I... um. You know, to use theological language, I fence the table, right? We ask non-Christians or even our young children to not participate. Not not because we're trying to be mean, not because we're judgy. It, It is because you don't renew your vows unless you're already married. You see how that works? Vow renewal is predicated on a commitment. The table is predicated on expressed faith. And as we go through the ritual of it, the Lord uses it to deepen faith in us, to nourish us, to to give us new faith. The Lord is dedicating himself to us again and again, and we are reaffirming again and again that we are his. Now, let me show you in the text how the details make this case. In verse 22, it says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Those words sound familiar? They do, right? Those are the words that I use as the words of institution. But did you notice that, need, that detail where it says that Jesus broke the bread? In my experience, bread does not break. It usually bends, right? Anyone ever notice this? It bends. The bread breaks... In this case, because it does not have leaven. Remember, they were in a hurry. There's no time to let the bread rise in Israel. So they're using matzah bread. But Jesus takes that bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he says, this broken bread is my broken body. Jesus is radically reinterpreting the Passover Jesus is saying, I am the bread. I am the true bread that is freedom from slavery. Not freed from Egypt, but a deeper, more pervasive slavery. Slavery to sin. This is the thing that stills your dignity and misshapes you. But I will be misshaped. I will be broken so that you can be whole. And then in verse 23, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. They all drink of it first, and then Jesus says what it means. He says, this is the blood of the covenant. Well, what is like blood of covenant? I mean, we say it all the time, but what is it? Well, blood in a covenant has a very specific Old Testament meaning. Because in ancient times, when two people made a covenant or a relational contract, they would take an animal, they cut it in half. I mean, it's extremely bloody. Two carcasses on either side. And the two people going into this covenant walk through the divided halves, this mess. They do it together and they do it as if to say, if I break my vows— May what happened to this animal also happen to me if I'm not faithful to the covenant. So Jesus says, this is the covenant in my blood. In other words, he is saying, I am entering into covenant relationship with my people, and I am going to seal and guarantee the relationship, not with the blood of animals, but with my blood, I will be broken in half. If someone fails, there is no forfeiture. My blood pays. Blood in the covenant. In my blood, I am the guarantor of this relationship. And Jesus, like that, becomes the Passover lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And so when we eat and drink the blood of the covenant, we're not not doing this like vampires or something weird like that. We are ingesting and pouring grace into ourselves. The blood of the covenant that covers us is also in us. It nourishes us spiritually. And the very last verse of our text records Jesus saying, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, there is something that is coming that is not here yet, and Jesus sees it. Jesus is guaranteeing a future. He will eat with us again. Let that certainty nourish you. Jesus gives us this feast to give us an identity to tell us who we are, to seal us and give us assurance with all of our doubts and fragility, and to nourish our faith and certainty because he is the guarantee of the covenant. Now, what do you say? How about we do it? Something that's even better than my mama's atole de arroz. Amen?